0: Team. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news, analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. <laughs>
1: Good morning, listeners. Um, You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with um,
2: Jacob and Zane. Welcome. Uh, Yes, the first thing to do, as always, is to acknowledge that 3CR is coming at you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, Sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land, like... Uh, everywhere else on the rest of the continent, and in the Torres Strait, and down in Tassie. Yep. So,
1: yeah. Uh, always. But, um. Um. So, Zane. Um. What?
2: Any sort of? What's the latest news that you have off the top of your head? Um. Well, actually, Michael just passed on a um press release. Uh. And there's an ongoing blockade at the Mitre detention centre in Broadmeadows. Mm. Um, The asylum seeker, Saeed, not his real name, um, is to be deported back to, I think it's Iraq. Yeah. And uh, just another example of the evil and horrible practice of uh, refoulement by Australian refugee authorities, whereby people who are fleeing in fear of their life, are actually sent back to the place where they have run away from. So that could be Afghanistan or Syria or um, the Tamil parts of of what is now Sri Lanka, um, but is historically Tamil-Elam, and in this case, uh, Iraq. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's absolutely wrong. It's against... um, u n human rights and refugee conventions to send people back to where they're where they've run away from uh but that's um yeah there's a there's a ongoing blockade there which so far has been able to block the entries and exits, checking cars, and that community blockade has so far protected Saeed from being deported so yes yeah.
1: so yeah solidarity with all the actors who are currently there um helping unblockade um, and you know support... And we stand with you. Here, here. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I actually, had a dream about go having to go to board detention. Um. The board Mayor's detention center. Apparently, I had to sign some kind of. I have to send some kind of form, otherwise, I would be deported from the country. That was literally my dream last night. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I did not go to board in the end, though, because I woke up, <laughs> realised it was a dream. All right. Um. I guess another kind of particular news story is um. What's happening right now. On the day of um, Harmony Day, um, Malcolm Turnbull and, you know, the government basically voted to, to, you know, to weaken um, Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. And, you know, the basis of that is, you know, we need freedom of speech, you know, to basically vilify and, you know, racially um, attack um, people. Um, So that was an interesting kind of contrast um, to, you know, the so-called, you know, multicultural values on Harmony Day. Um, Malcolm Turnbull basically voted, you know, and his government basically voted to make it easier to be racist to, towards other people, or mm. in the name of
2: preserving freedom of speech. Mm. Yeah, yeah sort of a good uh, meme doing the rounds, and it's sort of saying, oh yeah, freedom of speech is so important, uh, except, of course, if you're a uh, teacher or a medic from one of Australia's uh, detention gulags, in which case we will send you to jail if you tell everyone what you saw. Uh. Mm. And um,
1: there, was, um, there was a, a very um, interesting, funny example, because um, the Australian always goes on about freedom speech. Um, no, And, basic, and um, basically on Q&A, when, when there was a discussion during uh, about Bill League um Aboriginal um, protester went and screamed out, Bill Leake is racist. And then the Australian, in response, basically, you know, res- um, demanded that ABC make an apology, um, which is like, you know, the Australian gets away with, you know, vilifying, you know, some of the most oppressed, um, some of the most oppressed people in society, and they, they, you know, they hold nothing back on saying, you know, absolutely terrible things. But suddenly someone just says something mean about someone who, did those terrible things to other people before he died and we ha- and they demand an apology. Like, where, mm. where's the freedom of speech? Like, don't they have the freedom to offend or to do whatever they want?
2: Mm. Yep. It's poor, delicate, white, middle-aged racists. They're always entitled to an apology, unlike the people who they routinely um, insult and... Uh, Uh, Now, another thing that's worthy of mention, there was a bit of a discussion on social media earlier in the week. Uh, The March in March in Melbourne has been cancelled, although there seems to be a parallel event that's been set up. Um, And the organisers of the March in March Melbourne said that due to Unspecified threats, which are under investigation now by the police, uh, they've decided to cancel the rally.
1: Yeah, I think it's um a bit disappointing, especially when you hear about how there's all these you know following a lot of activists on social media. There's a lot of activists um getting geared up for you know march and march and their own you know their own. Country, well, they're not their own countries; their own states. Um, and um, we're we're going to be missing out on that. Um, Melbourne's going to have the one of the biggest cities in the world's going to miss out on that. Um, mm. it's down being part of that. And I think it is actually. I think March and March is, is an important kind of action because we know you need we need to show kind of like some kind of resistance, you know, to the current government's policies and to you know show to you know, show that there's people out on the streets out there saying that we have no confidence
2: in this government. Hmm. Yeah, and the organisers said that this was supposed to be a family-friendly event. They said that children were welcome to come along, families could come along, and that is the grounds upon which they cancelled it. Now, assuming that they have got a threat from a far-right group or groups, plural, which they... Refuse to confirm or deny where these threats are coming from But I mean, I don't know who else is in the business of making such threats these days But I know the far right love to uh, try and, you know, bluff themselves around like that Uh, Assuming that that is where these threats came from I I think it's really problematic to um, back down in the face of that And uh, I think it would be much better to say, alright, we've received these threats we reckon it's just um, bluff and posturing, but um, we encourage people to show defiance and come along to this event. And, uh, you know, if you're worried about bringing your kids, well, don't bring them then. But, uh, yeah, I think just cancelling, it's absolutely the wrong way to go. And it rewards whoever made those threats. Uh, it rewards them for behaving badly. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, I guess um, another um, particular news story I would like to um, share, let me quickly get it up, um, is um, is there was a nat- um, there was actually a National Union um, Day of Action on Wednesday. Um, basically, NUS organised march on um, on the on the Wednesday um but we didn't didn't attract a particularly large crowd in melbourne but we did but there were over 100 people in sydney there was over 200 and um at least in there's something interesting in brisbane um at least brisbane students um occupied the fo- um the foyer um were occupying the foyer of the federal government building as part of a national union day of students action for Free education so that's that's good um so yeah nothing really much to say other than then yeah there was a national day of action on Wednesday mm. um attracted over 100 hundred hundred people hopefully it grows from there and um I think it's pretty significant that um there's at least now putting a demand out there for a free education cuz <coughs> I think it's something that you know We've progressively lost um, as a result of, you know, um, previous reforms by government, you know, the hex stepped. You know, we used to have free education, you know, university used to be free and, you know, whatever mm. happened to that, we're um, still, still kind of in a better situation than in the US. We don't actually have to pay for our university education up front, but we still have to be put through, um, you know, quite a number, significant debt, especially if we earn quite a high income job.
3: Hm. Mm.
2: Yeah, what's the threshold these days? You repay an additional four percent of tax on um, your income uh, I think you're over fifty thousand. Yeah, and then once you're over about what ninety thousand, you pay an extra eight percent tax yep. on top of everything else. Yeah, so it's really just shifting the uh shifting that the price onto uh, the onto random individuals like. Same is happening with TAFE now. It's disgraceful. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm currently studying carpentry at TAFE, and they've cut the uh, they've cut the staffing in my um, TAFE course at uh, Heidelberg, which has meant that they've then had to revise the training schedule because they can't basically guarantee people's safety with these cut staffing numbers. Uh, so they've had to reduce the availability of courses which has the effect of delaying my ability to finish my studies and get my certificate Uh, and then the risk is that if I I get held over to next year these subsidies run out and I'll be having to pay full price for my um, carpentry so yeah it's happening across the board not just university but also in TAFE where the Turning into this user pay system, much better to have free universal education. Mm. You get much better education outcomes. That's the kind of gold standard, whether in Scandinavia or Cuba or other countries around the world.
1: And yeah, and education should be, uh, you know, a right, not a privilege. You know, for the few. Um, I guess we have only four minutes. Um, probably listeners probably know about um, the kind of tragic um, attack that happened in Westminster. Um, today. Um, well, it probably would have been yesterday or today, relatively, depending on, on the time zone differences between um, Britain and Australia. Um, but, yeah, it was a tragic event that um, a number of innocent people um, died and um, the Stop the War Coalition released a really good statement in response to it. Um, stop the, um, their coalition that, you know, organise all the anti-war actions and stuff around in Britain. And they they condemn the attacks on Westminster today saying that there can be no justification for the attacks on ordinary people in the street and those working in or providing security in a palace, in the Palace of Westminster. Uh, So so with all those killed, injured or caught up in the incident, the police have said that they have designated this as a terrorist attack and and it shares some of the features of other such attacks across Europe. Um, but I guess an important point that they make is, you know, stop the war, opposes the wars in the Middle East and South Asia. We believe that these have led to an increase in terrorism, which has made life more dangerous, not just for people in those regions, but in Britain as well. We have to oppose terrorism, but also confront the issues which help fuel it and search for a peaceful and just solution to the problems of the Middle East. The role of our government should be to urgently look for such solutions and not to maintain its involvement in wars which are helping create this instability around the world. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, um, that's the statement from um, Stop the War Coalition. Um, guess we'll might be time to play an announcement before we move on to our first interview of the program, which is going to be um, the CEO of Free50.org. He'll be talking to us about um, this new Stop Adani uh, Adani Mine campaign, um, which enrols uh, um, over 13 key environmental groups coming together.
2: Mm. And uh, yes, later in the show, we've also got Richard Tanta, the uh, president of the international, the Australian branch of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Um, and Richard will be talking about an upcoming um, forum or meeting that's happening at the United Nations to discuss banning nuclear weapons and then at Tempah State we've got Sonia Kadir The Awami Workers' Party Lahore Branch Women's Secretary, who's currently touring Australia, and she'll be coming into the studio, which is really cool, uh, to talk about the women's movement in Pakistan. So, yeah, stick around. It is 14 past 7, and you're listening to 3CR. This is Green Radio. Um, and yes, on the line we have got Blair Palacy, the uh, CEO of 350.org, and uh, yeah, we're keen to hear from you, Blair, uh, about this new Stop Adani Alliance. Uh, welcome.
4: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
2: Uh, all right. So, what's what's happening? Who is in this new Stop Adani Alliance? What are the different groups and, and people yeah. involved? Uh,
4: well, it was launched uh, this week by uh, one of my favourite people, Bob Brown, uh, who. Says it's, you know, the new Franklin fight. So it's nice to hear uh, that somebody who has that much experience in battles like the Franklin uh, is behind it and with us, uh, as well as th- it's all 13 organizations altogether, including ourselves, 350, uh, ACF, the AYCC, Market Forces, uh, you know, a whole range, some local and, and more grassroots organizations, uh, and a lot of, of the national organizations here in Australia.
2: Yeah, right. And is that um, is that always going to be 13 organisations, or is this alliance something that's looking to, I guess, bring other organisations into the fold and expand that
4: alliance? Absolutely. Yeah. No. I think we'd really love to expand it, particularly beyond you know just environmental and climate groups. Um, the Adani fight and and the reasons for stopping it are, are so widespread. You know, if nothing else, it's it's a I think it's a real turning point in Australia where we have to make a choice about. Do we stick with 1940s and 50s mining and digging things out of the ground that we know right now are polluting not only here in Australia, but where that coal would be burned in in India? But also, you know, we have a choice now to make about what our future will be like. Will it be clean energy? Will we go to the low-carbon economy? So I think unions will be important as well as uh, certainly youth and student groups because it's their future we're playing with. Uh, And we'd love to see uh, different kinds of uh, groups of people from all over the country take part if they're interested. Um, one thing to mention, too, is this, the fight about the the money, whether we should be using taxpayer money in a, in a fund called the NAEF Fund, which is an infrastructure fund. So there's also questions about uh, why and how we would use taxpayer money to prop up a project that couldn't stand on its own two feet, that will destroy our coral reef and our climate. Uh, and so there's lots of equity issues as well.
2: Hmm. Absolutely. And... Uh... Um, so one of, one of the issues that's come up recently as well is the, I guess, um, financial structuring of Adani and the way in which it's unlikely that much of the revenue that would come from this mine would stay in Australia in, in the form of royalties.
4: That's right, absolutely. And we've found that uh, the, the company, first of all, there are many of these companies, a bit of a shell game as to where things sit and who manages what reputation for this company in India is, is tragically bad. Uh, they're basically known for violating every promise they make, whether it's environmental or human rights and worker protection, uh, questions about money and tax. All those things are, are, I think, something we should think long and hard about and why we would risk our own uh, environment and our reef uh, with a company like that. Here we've found, too, they have offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands. And, you know, there's questions about whether, for instance, if we were to use taxpayer money to fund this mine, whether that money would go offshore. And, uh, you know, this is money that could be spent on many other things that could be helpful for building, for instance, new jobs in the northern part of, of Queensland, uh, in Clean jobs, clean technology, um, startup ideas, you know, things that people could use but would stay here and be a benefit to everyone that lives in Australia. So I think it raises lots of questions about why are we so keen uh, to give this money away? Why are we so keen to support a mine having signed the Paris Agreement and understanding that this kind of, you know, brand new, gigantic coal mine simply can't be built?
2: Hmm. And uh, so the mine has been approved. Uh, it's got state and federal approval. How close right. is this thing to actually getting built? Where is that yeah, up it's
4: to? A, it's a good question. The company is saying they're going to meet in May or June and have a, a final decision about moving forward and that they would bring construction sort of online about three months after that. Having said that, they don't have financial closure. And one of the cha- the real challenges around this Australian funding and whether we would do that or not is the company seems to be using the idea of the NAFE funding to go around and and give credibility to the project when, in fact, it still has not been passed. And every Australian I talk to seems possibly the most outraged about the idea of taxpayer money being used to um, bring this project off. So I think for Australians, it's one of the things we do have a say in. We have a say through our politicians uh, about how money is used uh, for things like this. And I think it's a real responsibility of all of us if we think this is a crazy idea to be heard quite loudly through our elected officials to say it's unacceptable because I believe if we could stop the NAF funding, this project would have a very hard time getting off the ground.
2: And that NAIF funding, that was never taken to an election as a, as a platform right. or a policy, was it? it was Not just, for this uh,
4: project, for sure. And, you know, it's often touted by the government as, you know, we're doing great things for Australians and jobs. And, uh, you know, to think about there's simply no transparency about how decisions are made for the NAIF money. Uh, there's no transparency about who the board is accountable or what criteria they're using to make choices about this funding. You know, it's nothing else. You would think things like, uh, is this money going to stay with Australia, in Australia, for the benefit of Australians, would be an absolute bottom line. But it's not clear because it's quite a mysterious uh, thing, and and there's no accountability for what they do fund or what what their criteria are. So I think it's, again, one of those things we all have a right to talk to our elected officials loudly and regularly about because if we could stop it, uh, I think it would make a real difference to stopping this mine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's quite a lightning rod in terms of its uh, scale and just the sure. the vastness. Yeah,
4: it's it's a billion dollars, and you think of what we could do with that for renewable energy. You know, certain regions up in Queensland are some of the most large take-up of solar uh, household-wise in, in the country. Um, those are jobs we should be moving toward and encouraging, and systems, you know, energy systems that can allow that to be popping up with support, with federal support, uh, not 1950s polluting coal with a mine that, you know, technically could have an impact on our coral reef, not just from the transport, but from the climate impacts, which we're, you know, already seeing two extremely dangerous years of bleaching uh, that show much of the reef may never recover.
2: And uh, 350.org, of course, is not just uh, fighting against new fossil fuel projects, but you're also very vocal in support of. Uh, renewable energy. Mm, Absolutely. And uh, Queensland is actually an ideal location for a lot of new wind and solar developments that would bring regional jobs, yeah?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, while we're not looking to that as our, you know, to turn to um, now when we know we first have to do it for our own commitments in the Paris, the UN Paris Agreement on Climate, but also just for the future of where jobs will lie in Australia. So an investment in that, uh, and, you know, we've heard the debate and battle over, you know, should we, if we, you know, the federal government saying too fast for renewables is dangerous for stability. Well, fixing that problem and allowing uh, a system, electricity system around the country that will transit, allow us to transition to the renewable energy we know we have to have um, is really critical. And again, that kind of money, a billion dollars, could make a huge difference to allowing that to happen. So I think, you know, we have to hold our elected officials accountable. Currently, the those that are in at the moment, at the federal level, have no plan for how we make that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and this impacts places like Queensland, where that money could be used to really send a strong signal that this is where the future is, and we're going to you know, innovate, we're going to move to that, um, and we're going to be part of that global economy that relies on clean energy. So a lot to be asked of our elected officials, and in Queensland, the state government as well, who have authorized this mine and stand by it. Uh, which is, of course, a labour government. So even though the labour government has what I think is, at least from a you know, starting point, an excellent uh, transition plan and thinking about the move to renewables, we still have a state uh, jumping up and down when it comes to coal and saying that's where we have to go.
2: And the, the Queensland government was elected on a platform of saving the reef. Doesn't,
4: mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. it
2: approving and going around sure, spooking for like Adani run totally counter to that? Sort Absolutely. of election promise?
4: Yeah, you know, are 69,000 jobs in tourism along the reef that Queensland depends on. So to think about turning your back on that, I mean, even the company itself has said under oath that the, the mine itself would provide something around 1,400 jobs. So the trade-off is significant. Um, and wh- again, why would we choose dark ages technology uh, over those jobs that are sustainable, that have been around and are, you know, a, a huge help to the Queensland economy and to Australia as, as it brings people in from around the world? Uh, is a, uh, it's a mind-boggling thing <laughs> why the hmm. Queensland government would support it. Um, to their credit, early on they promised uh, no state funding. Interestingly, that wouldn't require, it wouldn't have anything to do with the NAF funding. So you have seen that Palaszczuk and, and the mayors of Queensland off on a junket to India to talk about how great this project is going to be. Um, again, it's our job to hold accountable our elected officials to say this is just unacceptable. So 350 and six organizations are doing a roadshow about the Adani project all around Australia starting next week. Uh, Melbourne will be on the 31st at the convention center. So I'd love people to come along. We're going to be armed up with things that people can do from easy to, you know, escalating to ask uh, people, everyone in Australia to get involved to stop this mine because it's just too dangerous. We can't go there. It's time to leave that kind of giant climate bomb in the ground and move on. And we're all going to have to get active to make sure this doesn't happen.
2: Absolutely. And. Bob Brown did make that Franklin Dam comparison, and recently we've had the Bentley blockade. What sort of tactics uh, are kind of on the cards? Is there, If this thing does get financing, which is a very open-ended question because the economics of it are terrible, but mm. if it does get financing, uh, is, are there blockades planned, or is that something that's being kind of discussed and thought about?
4: I think people are pretty upset about this, mine. certainly those like, I go around to talk to, and often with a lot of older people with kids and grandkids who just can't see why we would go down this path, that it's such a threat to our environment and our future. Uh, I think people are ready to get activated. They're ready to start with anything, um, and we'll certainly with other organizations be looking to what those opportunities are, you know, certainly around the NAFE funding, around um, the company itself who will have to be you know starting up here in australia with uh working with australian companies who have, will be contracted to do work um so we'll be looking at you know where are those opportunities to make it very clear that people don't want this mine to go ahead um, and i think people are ready to you know do the kinds of things that were done in the franklin uh, would travel and would take risk and um, you know we'll certainly be Hoping that people will get vocal, very active, and that we can stand our ground on this project. It just simply can't go ahead.
2: Yeah, hmm. yeah. All right. And uh, what, what time actually? Uh, you said the 31st of March. At That's the, right. Is
4: that a uh, Friday? Uh, sadly, it's Friday. We'll see how people go hearing about a, you know, a, a somewhat dark story of you know going down the coal route on a Friday night. I could be at the pub. Uh, but uh, hopefully it's a good lineup of speakers. There's some music. There's a great um, MC who's a comedian. She'll be lovely to hear from. I think it starts at seven six thirty. Uh, doors open. So yeah, we'll be there bright and early uh, that afternoon to uh, talk to people and sign them up, and hopefully give them lots of ideas and things to kick off with to get active. Uh, and it's six organisations involved, and we're looking forward to building this as a strong coalition of groups that, um, you know, whatever they bring in their diversity of of who they are and how they work, um, to making this a very loud, a very diverse group uh, of people who don't want to see this mind go ahead and work together to, um, uh, I think, you know, do all we can to stop it and make it such a thing that we simply can't get past it. the power of those people taking action and being involved. Um, can really stand up and tell our elected officials, you can't go ahead with this or you won't have our support. Hey, hey. all right.
2: All um, right. Thanks very much, Blair, for um, speaking to us this morning. And, My pleasure. Uh, yeah, keep up the good work. And Thank you so much. Hopefully
4: yeah. we'll see you at the roadshow. Yeah, for sure. Wonderful. Thank you very right. much. Appreciate it. Thanks. All the best.
2: All right, uh, Blair Palaisi there, the CEO of uh, 350.org, talking about the new Stop Adani Alliance. And as Blair mentioned, Uh 6.30 doors open, 7 o'clock start on Friday the 31st of uh, March. That's next Friday at the Melbourne Convention Centre. If you want to go along and learn more and get involved in the campaign to hobble that mine and make sure it does not go ahead. All right, and you are on... 3CR, this
1: is Green left Radio. I guess um, we can... Um, I've got two kind of news stories. Um, one from... Actually, one of them is actually from uh, Lalita Shile, um, one of our panellists who's currently away in Malaysia right now. Um, but, she, yeah, she wrote an article, um, you know, from the perspective of a nurse on um, the topic of vaccination. Um, and, um, basically, she... She kind of outlines the kind of you know the argument that you know you know ras nation you know works obviously you know it's one of the most effective kind of preventive health measures we have in um in the world um but one of the things um she um put it issue with is you know that under you know our current kind of you know capitalist system you know ras nation can be hard to access for certain people because sometimes it costs money um Although vaccination is probably um, one of the things in most federal countries that is subsidised by the government. Um, But at the same time, she points to kind of like these amazing kind of examples of Cuba and how Cuba, you know, has massive funding, you know, for preventive health and, you know, has a really um, strong vaccination program. Mm. And then she points to that as, you know, the example of, you know, that's um, where I think, you know, most... Wealthy countries like Australia should look forward to like a very a, a community kind of based approach to vaccination, where you know vaccination, even things like flu shots, you know, I'm um, just going past the pharmacy, it still costs money for a flu shot, and you know that could be a prohibitive kind of thing, you know, for some of the more poor people, because you know five to, even if though it's five to ten dollars, that still can. Make a difference, mm. um, and I think yeah, she basically argues that you know things like you know flu shots, vaccinations, they should be provided free of charge, mm. um, especially the one, um, and that that's um, and that's the key um, to lowering immunisation rates. Not these kind of like um, not some of the because while th- some of this I'd, I I sympathise with, there's been some approaches for the government that's kind of, kind of seem kind of intent on trying to sort of Basically, you know, punish people for not getting vaccinations because, you know, some people have mistaken views about vaccination. There's quite a sizable anti vaccination <laughs> movement, sadly. Um, but, you know, Lali argues that, you know, we should be trying to, we should be moving away from those approaches and moving from a more community kind of based approach where people have more connection with, um, how, um, and it should be free. So, yep, that's the kind of basic argument of the article hmm. um, um, that Larlington wrote, and it's featured in the latest screen left weekly.
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's certainly problematic to just um, use purely coercive measures to try and force people to get their kids immunised. Uh, it should it should be something that's easy to just argue the facts of. It's it just makes so much sense and it works and it's uh, very problematic when people just won't listen to the science and it's well a bit of an indictment of our education system actually. Well, the the funny thing about that because I know quite a, I do quite a bit, lot of um because
1: yeah I have a, I have I. I have a personal attachment to this subject. Um, but actually, it's interesting enough in terms of this whole, the class, um, issues. Um, the majority, it's not actually poor people who are actually denying vaccinations. Mm. They're actually probably more likely to not receive their vaccinations for other reasons due to accessibility. Mm. For example, mm. if you're living in like a, um, a rural area and there's like, you know, the hospitals are quite far away, that is actually more of a barrier than, Ideological of, be, uh, of belief, so it's mm. not necessarily um, poor people um, that are that are not getting vaccinations because they've been uneducated. Um, there's no, um, but a lot of the sizable vaccination
2: um, deal actually comes from more privileged kind of middle class kind of communities. Yes, I've read the same thing, and there was a hilarious uh, section um, <laughs> a couple of years back um, on the McCallum show. And, uh, they're, they're interviewing this hypothetical, um, parent about why they haven't chosen to get their child vaccinated. And he's going, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, um, and listing off all these possible diseases the kid could catch. And the response of the parent is, oh, well, I don't think the kid would catch that sort of stuff from, uh, from our school or from the preschool that we're sending our child mm-hmm. to. But uh, ironically, that's precisely the place where they're likely to catch it mm. is, um, as you say, in what would be seen as somewhat more well healed or, or more wealthy parts of Melbourne and other cities, because that's where the, uh, the hotbeds of people who think they know better than the uh, Australian medical system are. Yeah,
1: so yeah, that's uh, that's more interesting, and so that really sort of reinforces kind of Lally's argument that need that we need to, the focus should be on making vaccination as accessible and convenient as possible, as opposed to you know adopting these core um
2: coercive kind of measures. Yeah, because it's no point trying to cut the Centrelink off of someone who doesn't get their kid vaccinated if they uh, don't use Centrelink. Yeah.
1: And I think um. The fact that is, um fact is if, if it even if even if like uh, if it just harms one person who, you know, pure, for purely innocent reasons didn't get an vaccination because, you know, they weren't able to access it, not that they will necessarily ignore us and I think that's a, con- a too high of a consequence to make, mm. especially since they do um, we shouldn't be attacking the poor, mm. you know, for for something like that. Mm. Um I guess now going to on to another kind of discussion, actually this is um this is it's something we should um probably do more a bit on this program but maybe we should um try and um feature at least or um cuz green left weekly has a sister site um kind of it's called um links um the international um, journal of socialist renewal Um, and we could sort of use it to, you know, to have a bit more deeper kind of discussions about politics, where they usually have longer articles, um, you know, from different socialist organisations, different groups, um, talking about, you know, different struggles and political issues that happen internationally. And Green Left Weekly regularly
2: reprints kind of abridged articles, um, from Mm. it. I've found doing, um, sociology at uni too, links is really useful if you're, uh, if you're studying and you want some, I guess, left-wing journal articles that you can include reference to in your um, essays. Links is a really good resource for that, too. Uh, But, yeah, go go on.
1: Yeah, so um, this article is an article written by Charles Pierce. Um, This is um, based on the U.S. election um, situation, and even though Zane hasn't read the article, I'm pretty sure he'll be able to um, pick up and join the discussion because it's asking just the question... Of this whole um, Russia Gate kind of scandal that has been kind of, you know, dominated the discourse in U.S. politics, um, and basically arguing it's not Hillary Clinton that lost the the election, you know, through her lack of appeal to working class people or mm. um, or her poor campaign. It was actually Just those dastardly Russians. It was the Russians, um, and so there's he goes and explores, you know, you know what are Asked the question, you know, what are the relevant facts? Um, you know, the first thing he, you know, just kind of states is that, you know, denials by Russia and WikiLeaks, that Russia was the source of the leaked emails when mentioned or have been suddenly dismissed. Um, there were, you know, there were undoubtedly other hackers who would want to hack um, DNS emails. And one of the things is that, you know... The US kind of intelligence agencies, which were the source of these kind of allegations, you know, kind of brought their own prejudices to it. It was more um, the fact that, you know, they had, they've, and he also brings up that they have a history of error, consequently drawing erroneous conclusions, such as, you know, one of them that the Cuban populace would welcome the 1961 Bay agents, And of course, the allegations of Russia's hacking of the DNC appeared to be based on suspicion, not actual proof. And of course, he makes the point, and this is what people use as proof that Russia must have rigged the election um that because Russia preferred Trump over clearly and to, for the election result, they naturally must have you know been involved in trying to rig the elections to make sure that Trump win um He argues that you know well, allegedly it was main the reason why Russia would prefer Trump over over Hillary was because Trump was more friendly to Russia in terms of foreign policy, whereas Hillary has always been on the record as being quite hostile to Russia in terms of um, foreign policy. Um, Mm. Not that we're necessarily, like, you know, saying that Russia is like a a bastion of progressive politics or anything. Mm. Um, And I guess he brings up also a second thing is, you know... (laughs) The, the there was this kind of big issue with the, the you know the leaked DNC emails about how they you know they totally undermined Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign but you know the content of it of these emails in themselves um were all were problematic and um basically um basically it, they revealed that, you know, then DNC staff has acted to undermine Bernie Sanders' campaign as to deliver, so to deliver the Democratic nomination to Hillary Clinton. Um, so, you know, this is one of the sort of facts when the Democratic establishment is going on about Russia, they kind of like, they get to mention what was actually in these leaked emails and actually take responsibility for it, mm. um, which is also another <laughs> hell we won't. And, of course, um, I guess... And then he brings up the third point... Um, she sees as probably a better explanation for why Hillary, you know, Clinton didn't win the presidential election than this so called Russia kind of scandal. Because, you know, I think if you take the premise that, you know, Russia did rig the election by leaking these emails, I doubt it would have had such a huge effect on the election result, you know, people, uh, because, you know, the United States is a massive country and there's also the fact that, um, um, that It's been a trend for the past several elections that the working poor increasingly do not vote Hmm. in the United States, especially because there's all these barriers to voting. For example, voting takes place on Tuesday for some reason, although it's based in um, American history. Um, A lot of um, polling booths um, in um, the United States... Is it a public holiday? No, it's not. (laughs) So it's like you have to take off, you literally have to take off work to vote. Mm. And in some of the more porous communities, um, a polling booth, you know how in Australia... You wait for 80 hours or whatever. Um, You know how in Australia, you know, there's always like a polling booth right next to, you know, your local school or something. In in some states of America, that's actually not the case. since You actually have to drive like an hour out of your way to get to a polling booth. That's crazy. And also another thing is pre-polling... There are some states that didn't have pre-polling. Some states had pre-polling, so they probably had increased better voting participation than other. But the whole mm. infrastructure of voting is
2: just so, you know, yeah. far behind. And watch this: um, that it was used in the 2000 election, Gore versus George W. Bush, and again in this election, where this totally dodgy process is used to scrub the names of primarily uh, black and Hispanic people. Off the electoral rolls.
1: Um, how that works is, I think it's
2: basically um, well, well, there's someone who's in jail for some petty offence yep. called John Brown, and your name is John Brown, and therefore this, it's kind of like a Centrelink robo debt or something. Mm. His computer says, oh, well, you've got roughly, vaguely the same name as that person. They're not allowed to vote, therefore you're not allowed to vote. Well, oh, that that has happened, um, but I think in the in the American
1: situation, I think they're, um, I'm not completely sure if, if you've had a prior conviction that you cannot vote, um, but I, but you definitely, if you're in prison, you definitely can't vote. And, you know, America has an increasingly mm. increased, um, a high prison population. It's got by far the biggest prison population outright and as a proportion and of the The majority population. of those people are arrested for, uh, Freddy crimes and they're basically victims of institutionalised racism and so their mm. voice is being denied a, a democratic say in this um the democratic process. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, that's um, that's a kind of small kind of summary of the article and discussion guy. He talks about some other things, but you can read more um, at links. Um, uh, it's titled "Who Actually Subverts um, Democracy."
2: Yeah, and just on that article, I mean, I don't think it's I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It's it's um, it's possible that Russia did spy, but I mean, yeah, to say that that's this smoking gun, that the, the whole election result can be reduced down to is yeah, yeah. ridiculous. I think
1: that's a bigger problem than whether or not Russia ha- allegedly hacked the um, US. You know, they possibly could have could. They have the, they're, they're a foreign power that has the, the power to it. but of course also, there's also the, the total hypocrisy of the US government, because the US government has been doing it for years. They mm. They have a history of Doing these kind of things of intervention or spying or rigging elections. Like, I don't think that you if, if they're just getting a taste of their own medicine, if, if, it's all, if these allegations are true.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR.
0: Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised, or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our national advocacy hotline on 03 8394 5266. It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter.
5: Get up.
2: You're listening to Green Ferry on 3CR with uh, Zane and Jacob. And on the line this morning, we've got Richard Tanta, the chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. Welcome, Richard. Good to be
1: with you. Yeah. So, Richard, um, um, tell us about... um, Maybe we can start off by telling us about... um, because reading over this meeting uh, about um, the, um, the fact that 50 faith-based organisations have called for the Australian Government to support and participate in next week's UN talks on a treaty to ban nuclear weapons.
3: Well, that's right. Uh, well, as we've said, uh, next week, for the first time ever, the United Nations is having a, a meeting of the General Assembly to... Uh, begin to negotiate uh, a ban on nuclear weapons uh, in all respects that's never happened before and I think the reason why the um, uh, very large number of uh, faith-based organizations in the country uh, have decided to uh, issue an appeal to the Australian government to participate is because of the real sense of threat and the real sense that this is an historic opportunity not to be missed and that Australia is really very isolated in its position, and I think that's dismayed many, many people.
1: Mm. Um, and so, what, what can you tell? Um, what can you just so for the listeners' information? What is kind of like? Um, what do you think are kind of the reasons that Australia is, you know, boycotting these talks?
3: Well, it says it's because it has a preference for what it calls a progressive approach, which basically is doing what we've been doing for the last 70 years, not getting very far. Um, The Australian government says uh, we want to progress slowly and surely and not destabilise global security. So it says uh, the United States and Russia are leaders in disarmament and we should wait for them to make the big steps. There's a problem with that pretty clearly. Um, there is no uh, uh, disarmament activity going on. The United Nations uh, Committee on Disarmament, which works by consensus, has been deadlocked um, for many, many years and nothing is happening and clearly the United States uh, under President Trump or Russia under uh, President Putin are in a mood to negotiate anything. So the the real reason is that, clearly that reason is not a very sound one, the real reason we know is the United States has been pressuring uh, all its allies um, for the last year and a half to either uh, vote against the uh, various uh, motions that led up to these negotiations in the United Nations or to not attend. Uh, We... I think that in the Australian case, as is very common with Australia and the United States, they didn't have to press very hard, and I actually suspect we volunteered. But in the case of NATO, for example, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation countries, um, they really had to press quite hard, and they issued a very stern injunction in October um, to NATO countries to uh, not support any motion uh, at the United Nations and not to participate when that motion succeeded. In Japan, we know from the Japanese government has been quite clear that it is deeply conflicted about this. Uh, We know that uh, Prime Minister Abe, a very right-wing prime minister, obviously would want to support the United States, but his uh, foreign minister, Mr Kishida, who happens to come from the the prefecture of Hiroshima, uh, did want. Japan to participate, and there was a report in Japanese newspapers last week making it very clear that the United States had been uh, literally heavying uh, the Cabinet and Foreign Minister Ishida, very direct pressure. So Australia probably volunteered to go along with the United States because it almost always does, but there may also have been some pressure there as well.
1: Yep. Um, what can you tell us about um, the nuclear non proliferation Non-proliferation. non-proliferation. Yeah,
3: non-proliferation treaty. Um. Yeah. Well, the non-proliferation treaty was signed back in 1968. Um, it uh, Australia is a signatory. Almost all countries in the world are signatories to it. Uh, North Korea was a signatory, but it withdrew, as is its legal right to do under a clause in that treaty, which says, you know, if you feel a sense of emergency, you can leave. Uh, India, Pakistan, and Israel did not sign. And all four of those countries, of course, have got nuclear weapons. Um, the treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, is really a big thing? Um, the it uh, has three parts to it. It says um, uh, all parties will uh, uh, negotiate in good faith towards nuclear disarmament. Now, it's arguable that uh, the, the the five countries recognise as nuclear powers under that treaty. Um, the United States, Russia, Britain, France, China, but they have not done so. Um, Secondly, the treaty uh, says nobody involved will transfer nuclear arms to one country to another. And thirdly, it gives uh, all countries or signatories an inalienable right uh, to nuclear power. The big problem with the NPT is while it really has been very successful in limiting proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, in most respects is like lots of United Nations agencies, it's underfunded and subject to if you like the the, the pressures of the big states within it and so it doesn't have a great budget for uh, verification. Uh, for arms inspections, but it 's doing a lot better than it used to in that regard, particularly after the, uh, the denuclearizing of Iraq before the invasion. so the UN, the, the NPT is a good treaty um, but it doesn 't affect it do the effective thing, which is force the nuclear armed states to give up their nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and that 's the idea behind the movement for a global ban treaty. I think nobody involved in that treaty is under any illusions that the nuclear states are going to give up their weapons immediately on the signing of a treaty. But the idea is very clearly that the non-nuclear weapon states of the world, the great majority of the states in the world, have had enough and they want to make clear that nuclear weapons are illegitimate, uh, unlawful and massively unjust to the rest of the world. In other words, to stigmatise the possession of nuclear weapons. And Australia, as a loyal ally of the United States, seems to be unwilling to uh, support anything like that.
1: Zane, hmm. do you have a question?
2: Uh, yeah, I was just, just wondering about the uh, uranium trade. Like, obviously, Australia is a major uranium exporter. In theory, we're not supposed to export it in a way that allows it to go into weapons. In practice, we export it to India, who, as you've just mentioned, are not part of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Do you think that the commercial imperative for Australia to keep exporting uranium is potentially also a factor in the Australian Government's position of of wanting to not take part in these talks?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. We export to, uh, of course, China, we export to uh, South Korea, we export to Japan um, and clearly there is some money to be made in that and that's always a factor in our kind of economy. Um, On the other hand, I th- it's very clear that um, the export of uranium is principally for nuclear power and nuclear power has a very limited future, I think. Uh, the days when everybody thought that uh, there was going to be a nuclear renaissance, uh, really they were not very bright before Fukushima the disaster in Japan and they're much less bright now. Um, uranium companies are not or... The uranium parts of the big mining companies are not making a lot of money uh, and there's very little prospect that that's going to change. Clearly the future of uh, energy uh, in the world is around renewables. Uh, not nuclear power. So I think I can understand why one would want to think about that prop- that, that motivation mm. uh, but I actually think it, it's, that's not very it. It's not on.
2: Yeah, right. So it's much more about the US um, It is about military. it. That's right. I think in, you mm. know,
3: the Australian government in, the, in these circumstances is still thinking about itself as a, um, a loyal ally to the United States. What do we have to To do to um, maintain our credibility, our credit with the Americans, we'll go along with this as we've gone along with their request to go to war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria.
2: Hmm. All right. And uh, are there any protests? Are there petitions people can sign? How can people. I think
3: one of the most useful things to do is to look at the website of ICANN, that's the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, which has got uh, both uh, access to things you can do. We certainly want people to write to the government about this. It is not; it, it is possible for the Australian government to change its mind, to, uh, to see that it's possible. I think it's really important also to, for people to write to the Labor Party, uh, which is uh, not clear on the issue um, uh, is uh, there have been good statements made. Labor Party platform is clear that Australia should participate and should support a ban like this. And, of course, we know that sometimes there's a bit of a slip between Labor policy uh, in uh, when they're out of office and what they do when they get into Canberra. So pressure on the Labor Party is important. But the ICANN website, uh, icanw.org, Dot org. I can I guess I can w. dot org um, has lots of resources. It has a blog, a really interesting blog, saying what's happening day to day at the moment. And there's also another terrific organisation, um, Reaching Critical Will, uh, which is a, a, an offshoot of the Women's League, International League for Peace and Freedom, 100 years old uh, this year.
5: Mm. And
3: they have very, very good information, both I can and Reaching Critical Will. Uh, partners of the uh, states uh, proposing uh, this um, uh, this initiative of the United Nations, and so there's a lot of information there. Just one last thing for your readers, for your listeners, I think is really important to understand: hmm. Australia is really isolated on this. Every country in the South Pacific, from the Marshall Islands, where, of course, there were many, many American nuclear tests, uh, all the way through Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Kiribati, New Zealand, all the South Pacific countries are there and are supporting uh, this motion. And maybe more importantly in, uh, for Australians still, every Southeast Asian country, every member of ASEAN is very clearly... Uh, participating and supporting this uh, proposal of the United Nations. Malaysia is a co-sponsor, the Indonesians are very firm about this. We stick out like a sore thumb and I really think that's something that we need to press our government about to say this is a very, very bad politics apart from being on the wrong side of history
2: hmm. Indeed, alright well, uh, yeah, keep up the good work and uh, thanks very much for talking with us this morning Good on you. Happy to be with you. Please. Um, Richard Tanter there, the chair of the uh, chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons uh, in Australia, which is an international organisation, as the name suggests. And uh, yeah, keep an eye out because that uh, first ever uh, UN summit on outright uh, outlawing nuclear weapons will be beginning on the twenty seventh of March. Oh, you. All right on three c r and it is just after eight o'clock on Friday morning, so perhaps you need to get up and go and sell your labour somewhere. well, it's time to hop out of bed and uh hopefully um maybe you're not a weekend worker, so once you finish your selling your labour for today, you can then have a break, which is always a good thing to look forward to. Uh, all right, time for the activist calendar. A bit of a round up of upcoming activist things and happenings across this town.
1: Hey, Yep. So there'll be a book launch on um, sustainable agriculture versus corporate greed, um, featuring co-author Alan Broughton, who we interviewed on Green Left Weekly Radio the other week. Um, it's going to be happening on the 30th of March, this Thursday, at 6:30 PM, with meal from 6 PM at the Multicultural Hub, in the Purple Room, which is at 506 Elizabeth Street in the City, opposite Victoria Markets.
2: Yes. Sustainable agriculture versus corporate greed. Um,
1: and also on Friday, there'll be, March 31st, there'll be the Stop Adani Roadshow. Um, stopping the Adani Megamine and moving Australia beyond coal. Um, that will be happening at the Melbourne Expedition Centre um, for a, with the doors opening at 630 for a 7pm start. Um, so Melbourne Expedition Centre, plenary 2 at the South Wharf.
2: Yep. Um, now, as we've often mentioned, if you want to get a hard copy, of uh, Greenleaf Weekly, you can do so. The Savo at Flinders Street Station uh, between 4 and 6pm. Um, and they'll be on Saturday, the
1: 1st of April. Um, they're on the same boat. Um, this is another... We've interviewed the lead singer of that band um, for their, their Melbourne activist band will be launching their... De- um, their, debout, well, their, their first album basically. Um, no One Will Be Left Behind, um, which includes you know, 10 original tracks about important issues such as social injustice, climate and environment. Um, half of the, all, all the door sales will be donated directly to the Refugee Action Collective and the entry also includes a free copy of the album. This will be at, happening at 9pm at the Bar 303 which is at 303 High Street in Northcote. <coughs> what date was that, sorry? April the first on April Fool's Day. It's not an April Fool's joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: wicked. Uh, and, I'm keen to head along to that. So. And
1: um, but also happening on that same day, same night, um, will be Ezekiel Ox, um, who's the activist artist. That will be happening at the Evelyn Hotel, three fifty one Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Although there's no times for that, as far as I know, that might be at like. Because it's been supported by multiple acts, it could, um, be, um, could be planned at like 11 on the door. Probably is like eight o'clock or something. Um, on Thursday, the 6th of April, um, left Q&A, Clive Hamilton, the story of protests in Australia. That'll be happening at 7pm at the Bella Union and Trades Hall. Um, and it's presented by the new international bookshop.
2: Rewind uh, Cause on April 1 and 2 The uh, Refugee Action Collective Are having a Super Stalls Weekend Uh, So there's a weekend of stalls across Melbourne to get the word out about the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees And yeah it's pretty self-explanatory. Get together with your friends, family, or organisation. Register a stall in a location near you. Uh, RAC can help provide materials, posters, leaflets, and stuff. So for more info about that, uh, to help build a big refugee rally for the uh, the traditional Palm Sunday refugee walk, um, yeah, visit the RAC Facebook page. Just look up Refugee Action Collective Victoria.
1: Um, On (coughs) Saturday, April the 8th, um, Politics After Trump, Building Resistance, um, a day of discussion on fighting for a better world, organised by Social Alliance and Resistance. Um, They'll be happening from 10 a.m. to um, 5 um, p.m. for the whole day um, with different sessions um, happening throughout the day. One, there could be one session on um, the environment, one session on, you know, um, the context for which the fire right are arising. Um, and also uh, how we can fight back and build a better world. Um, so that will be at from 10am to 5pm at the Works, which is at 33 Saxon Street in Brockmanswick. And for more info, phone 96398622. Um, also happening um, will be um, the Political Asylum Comedy Night, which will be happening on Saturday night at 11pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. Probably find that out more about that through um, the Melbourne um, Comedy Festival website, um, and you'll probably have to make bookings for that. On Sunday, the April the ninth, there'll be uh, a rally, Palm Sunday walk, Justice for Refugees at two p.m. at the State Library in Swanson Street in the city. And the last thing will be um, on Saturday, April the twenty-second, um, the West Papuan Office, um, which is a um, will be happening at 1 to 3 pm, um, which is at the West Papuan office, suit, um, 211838 Collins Street in the Docklands.
2: Mm. True stories. Many true stories.
1: Um, and also, if you're in Geelong, there'll be a Red Cinema, Ken, um, Ken Lopes' says, I, Daniel Blake, from at 7pm, meal from 6.30 at the Trades Hall on Friday, March 24th.
2: Oh, cool, I haven't seen that. Wait, I've wait, heard. no, that's already I've passed. Oh, oh, wait, that's today. That's tonight. Oh, oh tonight! Yes, it's tonight.
5: <laughs> tonight!
2: <laughs> yep. Get amongst it if you're in Geelong. Yeah, okay. I've heard that's really good, I, Daniel Blake. Yeah, it's a
1: fantastic so. film.
2: And actually, uh, on one of our uh, rival broadcasters, Triple J, there was a story this week about someone, um, a young man, who was uh, given a terminal cancer prognosis, unfortunately. And the way that Centrelink and Max Employment were trying to force him to go to... Uh, Stupid mundane meetings about getting a job, and when he didn't turn up because he was literally dying of cancer and really sick, they cut off his welfare payment, uh, his Centrelink payment, which was being used to pay for his various medical appointments and stuff. So, just disgusting and disgraceful. And yeah, that film, I Daniel Blake, is about a similar thing in a UK context where someone is, uh, yeah, looking for medical treatment
1: Okay, um, so we have um, Sonia Kadir um, on the line right now, um, she is a member of the Awami Workers Party she's currently um, from Pakistan she's currently in um, Australia um, and um, she also has been involved in um, the setting up of a feminist collective in Pakistan and um, is involved in many political struggles and um, things in Pakistan, so good morning um, Sonia Good morning. All right, so I guess um, the first question we can ask you is, um, you know, um, start by maybe telling you, um, you can tell us about yourself and, you know, what drives you politically and how did you get involved in um, politics, and then maybe we can move on to talking about the greater political context for Pakistan and what you're involved in.
5: Sure. Actually, it's interesting. I think I came to the left um, through my personal struggles as a woman in um, in Pakistan. So um, even though I've worked, done more work around feminism lately, but I think even initially my interest in politics and my politicization had a lot to do with my personal experience as a woman. Um, and then also I think um, just sort of being part of... Um, the lawyers' movement back in 2007, 2008. This is when I was in college, and um, my college is one of the places that was involved uh, very actively in um, the lawyers' movement in Pakistan. And I was also just starting law school at that time. So um, that was, I think, for our generation, one of the events that um, sort of made a lot of us think about um, political issues much more seriously. And after it ended. Um, Uh, I think I sort of remained uh, much, in fact, I think I got even more active because um, at the same time I was also studying and I was taking a lot of courses in history and uh, politics um, and was able to sort of be in a space where there were professors who were also radical and it was left-wing and sort of then just be able to meet the people who were, you know, part of left-wing parties and see the work that they were doing.
1: Yeah. So um, what are the kind of like current um, struggles that are happening and movements that are happening in Pakistan, um, Pakistanian politics that you are currently involved in?
5: Okay, so um, the work that I'm personally doing the most is uh, around the feminist um, issues. Um, and this also came out of um, having been part of the left for many, many years, um, and it's just that when, as a left-wing activist, as a woman, you're doing that work, it's just. Um, I think, as a personal uh, sort of just attempt to do that work, it's also kind of hard because there are issues of gender that keep cropping up. Um, and whether you're uh, trying to, whether you sort of take up the question of organizing female workers, or whether it's just you trying to interact with other comrades who may not be able to understand how that gender affects um, our personal interactions as well. So um, because of that, we sort of created this um, group called the Feminist Collective. This is about one and a half year ago. And the idea behind that was to be able to do left work with a feminist sort of methodology in mind. Um, And other than that, um, the the kind of work that's happening in Pakistan, of course, it includes a lot of work around housing rights because – uh, Pakistan is especially the province where I'm from Punjab. It's the biggest province, most populated, um, most economically sort of well off. And it's becoming increasingly increasingly urbanized. Um and because of that a lot of people who live on the land, small farmers, etc., people they are being evicted and um there's house um sort of a lot of like land development happening, so whether they're building um gated gating houses gated houses housing societies etc so um so that kind of work around squatters' rights and um people who live in informal sort of settings in the on the land or whether they're farmers and they're being evicted. um so i think right now we're trying to sort of also create this um much larger campaign around right to the city which I think is where in terms of where we are located that's really becoming the more important struggle for the future
1: um do you, do you want to tell us more about um um the kind of greater kind of political context um in Pakistan like you know what is sort of the what is the current government and though um and sort of how it affects kind of like you know left wing politics and building a left movement in pakistan
5: um, yeah so um the left, like I would say anywhere I guess in the world right now, um the left is quite fractured, it's very, very small. Um, and especially in bigger cities, um, it is very difficult to do that kind of work because um because of how marginal it is and how much more money is, you know, important in politics now. So, um especially electoral politics, so it's kind of difficult to be a major force um in any like large city. Um, but having said that, in smaller cities, it's still um, the smaller cities, the smaller towns. It's still a little bit little easier to do that kind of work. But in general, Pakistan's um, present government—it's um, uh, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, which is a centre-right party—and um, they are um, very business-oriented, very trade-oriented. Um, and, this, um I think the interesting thing is that Pakistan has had. Um, Throughout its history, Pakistan has had a lot of coups and military dictatorships. So this is the first time that I think this is the second um, democratic government that has uh, that is almost finishing its term. It finish in 2018. Um, so so I think for Pakistan, and I, um, I mean I know that the struggles around social rights are so extremely important, but at some level the left also seems at a at a back foot because. Just defending democracy so hard in Pakistan because all the time there is this, this fear that um, the, the, the military is going to come back. Um, and so what, current, what happened is um, during the lawyers' movement, after which I was talking about earlier, this was a movement when there were the last against the last um, general uh, military general Musharraf. The there was a sort of movement of the judiciary and of the lawyers. And after which he, first of all, had to remove the emergency that he had imposed. He had to, uh, and also then eventually there was a, like, he had to um, have elections, a democratic government came in, then he also had to resign as a president. And eventually their judiciary then had to be uh, to be restored by the democratic government because of the pressure of the warrior movement um, but since so since then we've had the democratic uh, government so there was that the first one which was the party Pakistan People's Party then they handed over power to the present government um, but throughout this time um, it's interesting that it's only been a couple of years but already the military has gained so much ground again and um, yeah, the sort of the i think there's a war of blood always in pakistan and um that war i mean since even if they're able to sort of push the establishment on the back foot for a while they're able to gain that ground back very very quickly so this is what they've done again in the last two three years and now um especially because um there is this uh new sort of um i would say a regional change shift towards china so china's building Pakistan Economic Corridor and Pakistan-China Economic Corridor, sorry, and which <clears throat> is part of its like larger plans for all of Asia as a like a new Silk Road that it wants to build. So there is uh, because a lot of money is coming in, a lot of investment is coming in. It's becoming really, really hard to sort of to to be critical of anything because um, the stakes are so high. And establishments establishment, especially the military, is very heavily involved in the businesses they're doing. And I think they're, they're taking the huge sort of chunk of um, the business interest. And uh, because of that, they are um, also very conscious at this moment of any critique, whether of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which, of course, <clears throat> is the fact that um, we don't know how much Pakistan will sort of um, really – Gain from that, like in terms of um, how much, uh, because Pakistan is actually going to go in huge debt to China, and um, all of these infrastructure pro- um, <laughs> infrastructure projects that are being built. <clears throat> how much do they actually help Pakistan? Um, and also, there's a huge environmental concern. So, for instance, um, China's closing its own coal-powered um, um, sort of plants. I think the last one just closed recently. And it's building them in Pakistan now. And as activists, as civil society, we are not allowed to question that because if you do, then you can question the development model, you question the state, and um, that is sort of um, considered sort of treasonous, kind of almost now. Um, so yeah, the, I think the in some ways, I think the situation at this particular moment is sort of getting much more critical, and the security state is really taking um, a much more of a sort of monstrous form at the moment
1: yeah um i have a question um, um basically what is kind of like um the relationship between um because you know most um, of people's views on politics um on Pakistan is probably actually framed by um, y- the United States um, imperialist, imperialism. And so what is kind of the relationship between the United States and Pakistan and, you know, how that um, influences kind of the, the politics on the ground in terms of social movements and the struggles? <clears throat>
5: um, so I think Pakistan, from the very beginning, very um, firmly joined the U.S. camp. Um, so it has historically... Uh, been been like a very good ally in almost all the wars that the U.S. has fought, and has has given its sort of you know um, given its territory to be used as bases for different different American wars, and also um, <clears throat> sort of very wholeheartedly um, taken on the agenda of the um, of the World Bank, of IMF, so a structural um, sort of the restructuring of the entire economy, et cetera. <clears throat> Um, but there's also a lot of um sort of um i think uh, um dissent against stuff on the ground so um some of it has also come from the right wing which sort of um well, it has never really um stood up against the sort of economic imperialism of the u s um is' still uh, very a vocally against the sort of like, what, what they see as a cultural imperialism so for them the question is much more around uh, issues of religion and um and women's rights and how they see a um, modernization americanization of Pakistani culture um but other than but uh, but on the ground uh people who are affected by the sort of um structural adjustment programs that imf or, or world Bank have pushed through over the last decades main decades um, they are critical of, I mean, and of course they see America as a continuation of the British imperialism or suffering from, from British imperialist power. So, um, so there so definitely there is that understanding, I think, on the ground within social movements of the kind of uh, role that America has played in the wars and sort of really destabilizing Pakistan and taking it to the point we had yesterday where the. Um, in terms of the security situation, in terms of um, all these small militant organizations. And, um, of course, uh, even though you, the West generally sort of has this <clears throat> mantra of how, you know, there is a war in terrorism and the West is under attack, but whereas in reality it's really the people on the ground and not even – I mean, in the big cities, but also actually in the smaller towns and the more marginal cities in, um, and even like um, in tribal areas, et cetera, people who are actually affected by um, this outbreak of violence from both sides, whether it is the state and the military trying to, what they say, and, um, sort of, um, you know, in their war against terror, war, war on terror, but also as well as um, the way the militants sort of um, create violence, but those those, uh, those places are. Um, because there's so many bombings, et cetera, as well, in Pakistan all the time. So, um, yeah, I think on the ground there is a month, and this mm. is very clear understanding of these issues. <coughs> i sorry, what
2: was
1: your other question? Oh, Sonia has a... Qu- I mean, uh, Zain has a question. <coughs> um,
2: <laughs> yeah, so just to, uh, remind listeners, we're, um, talking with Sonia Kadir, the, uh, Lahore Women's Secretary of the Awami Workers' Party from Pakistan, who's visiting Australia at the moment, um... I was just keen to ask you about the, um, high profile murder of, um, uh, Kandil Baloch in, yeah. in July last year. So Kandil was a 26 year old woman. She was a, um, a fashion model and a social media sensation and, um, basically, um, outspoken about, being a, a sexually liberated young woman in in Pakistan and this um, she ended up being murdered by her brother and the, uh, from what I understand there was mass <coughs> outrage about this and this was a bit of a watershed moment uh, just wondering if you could tell listeners a bit more about that uh, that case
5: sure um so yes as you said uh, I can was a sort of like a social media star and um, she was very um I think very outspoken and um <clears throat> sort of very uh confident about her sexuality and um there's not sort of mince words about it um and when she was murdered by her brother, this was um i mean so uh, the sort of owner killing and these was definitely from and um the reasons around it that we you know. Um, are around owner killing and it's it's a and it's an issue that has come back time and again and I mean this is not the first time um it keeps happening within i think the last year there have been multiple cases of honor killings and some very well um sort of um very well known very mainstream ones to so um I, but the interesting thing is also that often there are other issues within the 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 within the question of honor killing so sometimes, <clears throat> there are issues of property involved, and she also in this case too, there might have been that aspect of it that that's because she was the she was the bread earner of the family, and uh, she was also sort of um supporting her parents that her brother might have wanted part of that um some some part of that um uh, property but um in general, the issue around um <clears throat> Or killing or sort of uh, these kinds of murders of women is that within Pakistani law there is this provision to forgive your um, the sort of the perpetrator of, like uh, so the the victim's family can forgive the murderer and just accept um, blood money or uh, just completely forget them etc. Um, and that is often actually more um, mostly used in cases of honor killing, and or other, other cases where women are murdered because um, often women are murdered by their close family relatives, and uh, one the so one of the family member will forgive the other one, and uh, <clears throat> just because often let's say if it's the brother and the father will forgive the son for killing his daughter. So um, this is really <laughs> the reason why there is so much sort of talk around this um around these issues and why so many people get away with it and it becomes so easy to mm-hmm. sort of um you know have murder women and then just walk away free, and so the so, the debate around feminist circles. Mm-hmm. And this time too with Kimmy Bullock's murder <laughs> um the group get out involved with the feminist collective was very vocal on um on this issue and we also issued a statement. Um <clears throat> On her murder, and sort of also sort of being able to see, uh, sort of seeing that you know in some ways she was a modern t- feminist or contemporary feminist because she was so outspoken, and um, she the realization There are many women who are you know who might uh, do pornography or etc. But for her, the fact that she was actually um, calling out. Hey, I'm um, like sorry, you? I'm
1: Sonia. Well, I'm really sorry, we have to cut you off. Uh, now yeah, we're running very low on time now. Um, there's a, there, um, the next program is trying to get started now and um, yeah. we've got to, yeah, all we've right. got to... Uh, yeah. Ray, thanks for that interview, <laughs> Sonia. It's a shame yeah. we could not have more time to talk. We're yeah. um, yeah, um, time. I hope I answered
5: your question.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it's Thank very you. good. All right. Um, thanks, um, listeners, for listening. Um, you are listening to Green Left
0: Weekly really, Radio. Thank all our guests and, yep... This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.